Hey friends, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to get spoon-fed the latest and the greatest of emergency medicine, where we are trying to make keeping up with the literature as easy as possible by spoon-feeding you the latest research. Now then, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we covered from this past week. First off, POCUS for the difficult airway. Second, what do you do in the case of an ovarian torsion? Third, could ACLS go the way of the dodo to make room for the up-and-coming eCPR? We'll find out. Fourth, how should a mechanism of action be playing into trauma triage? And then lastly, can you tell a STEMI apart from pericarditis? All right, if you're hearing this right now, then you are not currently a Journal Feed subscriber and so are not receiving the full Journal Feed podcast. You're only receiving a portion of the past week's summaries. Don't worry, though. I, of course, picked my favorites for you guys. But if you would like to get full access to the podcast and the blog, then you'll have to become a member. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. Remember, we do not want money to ever be a barrier to patient care, though. So if you're having any trouble affording a subscription, just reach out to us and we are here to help you out. This is the audio version of the past week summaries, which were brought to you this week by the lovely Jonathan Brewer, Sam Parnell, and Clay Smith. All right, that's enough of the preamble. Let's get to the first article, which this week was titled Airway Ultrasound as a Predictor of Difficult Direct Laryngoscopy, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis out of the Journal of Anesthesia and Analgesia. All right, so most airways are going to be pretty easy. Some, though, just aren't. And difficult airways are said to be as common as 4 to 7% of emergency department airways. That's quite a bit. Now, calling for help is the first advice that anyone is ever going to tell you. But getting help, it's a lot of work and it requires a lot of people and it requires a lot of time from a lot of people. And so knowing when you actually need to do that, that would be ideal. As it stands, a lot of people use anatomical models to predict a difficult airway, like the myelin patty. I personally like to use the upper lip bite test because it's got a pretty good positive predictive value and is a combination of various different anatomical features which are important for having a good airway. Honestly, though, none of the tests or evaluations we currently do are all that great. But, you know, it'd be a great tool that I would love to take advantage of for this. That's right, guys. Of course, it's POCUS. This study was a meta-analysis of 15 studies on adults being intubated for elective general surgery without clear anatomical abnormalities, which would have made intubation difficult, and then their upper airways were POCUSed. They measured things like skin-to-epiglottis distance, skin-to-hyoid, and skin-to-vocal cord distances. Patients with difficult direct laryngoscopy views had higher distances on these measurements, mostly by fractions of centimeters, but there's not that much room in the neck, and these can be important centimeters. The sensitivity and specificity of these measurements was on the order of 70s to 80% for both. Of these three measurements, though, the skin-to-epiglottis seemed to be the best test but mostly for its negative predictive value of 95 to 98%. That's better than any other technique that I've seen studied so far. The positive predictive value, though, isn't great, and so it's not going to be that helpful of a test overall, because it's not going to tell you when you should call for help when you wouldn't have otherwise, but it could give you some peace of mind. Can all this be generalized to the emergency department? It's hard to say. Most of these trials were for predicting difficult views by direct laryngoscopy, and many, many more of us are using video laryngoscopy as first line. Also, these were not emergency department patients, so there might be some differences there. 
and a spoonful upper airway pocus may one day help us predict which airways will be bad ones. But I don't think that day is going to be today. Remember, it can be helpful for landmarking surgical airways, though. All right, so then we're going to jump right over to the third article, titled Effect of Intra-Arrest Transport Extracorporeal Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation and Immediate Invasive Assessment and Treatment on Functional Neurological Outcome in Refractory Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest, a Randomized Clinical Trial out of the JAMA. Outcomes are not very promising for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, so something in this realm that would help could be game-changing. The arrest RCT showed some promise for eCPR, and we're still hungry for more data on this topic, so I'm happy to see something coming out of Europe. Here is a single-center RCT of 256 patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. Their target recruitment was actually 30 more patients, but the trial was stopped due to futility. All of these patients were witnessed out-of-hospital cardiac arrest patients without ROSC after 5 minutes of ACLS. About half of them are randomized to mechanical compressions with rapid transport for early invasive eCPR versus the other group, which had just standard ACLS on site. Now, this is pretty cool. The EMS were doing chest compressions, and then they would receive a phone call from the randomizing service during their chest compressions telling them which group that they were randomized into. Now, I'm not sure what the cost on the resuscitation is of getting a phone call that completely changes your flow of the resuscitation. It doesn't seem very natural to me. It kind of might mess up your approach. But anyways, I, I think we're probably missing out on some of the expertise that our EMS colleagues could provide. But if they hadn't randomized it in some fashion like this, then I'd be complaining that they hadn't done it. So, so you can't have everything. Now, they chose a great outcome, very patient-centered, which was 180-day good neurological survival. Now, there were more patients with good outcomes in the eCPR group by about 10%, but this had wide confidence intervals which spanned across one, making it not significant. So, this was a negative trial overall, but I still think that there are some interesting things in here, and I wouldn't give up on eCPR just yet. There are a few interesting differences between the groups like the fact that hypothermia treatment was started on the way to the hospital in the eCPR group, and that initially mechanical CPR was supposed to be reserved for just the eCPR group, but then a publication partway through the study changed the rules and they allowed any patient to have mechanical CPR. So there were a few more patients who got mechanical CPR, and they had pre-hospital hypothermia in the eCPR group. There was also a few more patients with shockable rhythms in the ACLS group, with a few less having chronic heart disease. But these two things were randomized, so not much to do about that. The last thing was that 10 patients actually crossed over into the eCPR group, and 4 of them achieved the primary outcome. But they were analyzed under intention to treat, so they were counted in the ACLS group. The 30-day neurological survival was statistically significantly better in the eCPR group, with a difference of about 12%. That's 14 patients having better neurological survival. But again, by 180 days, that significant difference had, well, disappeared. So this trial is quite different from the arrest trial. These patients were randomized early, at 5 minutes into the code, instead of only when they were classified as being refractory. So we're not comparing apples to apples here at all. I think this study highlights that eCPR as an approach might not be for all comers, and so we might need to figure out who is going to benefit most from this. Is it just people with refractory shock? I, it's not hard to say so far. That said though, eCPR also didn't look worse than standard ACLS, although it would be much more expensive, and more of the eCPR patients went on to give organs as donations, 
for whatever that's worth. In a spoonful, eCPR was not superior to standard ACLS for achieving 180-day good neurological survival, but this doesn't even come close to closing the lid on eCPR. All right, let's do a wrap-up of what did we learn from this week. First off, POCUS of the upper airways. Well, it needs some work before it's really ready for the prime time as a major contender in the world of predicting difficult airways. Jumping over to the third article, early initiation of eCPR in all comers for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest was not superior to standard ACLS. But I think there is still so much more to explore for eCPR, which hopefully we'll see in future studies. Links to all the articles summarized can be found at journalfeed.org, where of course the newsletter is going to be the best way to turn the podcast into a bite-sized nugget of space repetition. If you feel like you're missing out, you'd like more podcasts, you'd like to get the newsletter as well, well, then join us over at the members feed. All the details for that are at journalfeed.org. Our goal here at the Journal Feed is to provide the best patient care through spoon feeding. And so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research, one spoonful at a time. Thank you.